Okay, welcome to Lesson 2, or Confessing the Faith, Part 2. If you weren't here last week, here's the brief recap. Uh, Everyone, by necessity, has a confession of faith. They have something they believe, and then they carry it into the world in some way, whether it's through verbal proclamation or through their lives. They confess what they believe about God, about man, about reality. It's inescapable. As Christians, what we want to do is make sure we're confessing the truth when we confess our faith. Our faith needs to be constituted by the truth. Where we go for the truth? To God's word. And so confessions of faith that Christians write down are uh, summaries. There's the word. Uh, They're summaries of what they believe the Bible teaches about those big ideas. They're systematic uh, constructions of biblical truth. And I think uh, it is crucial for every Christian to think through what they believe about those things in order to guide them in just everyday life, but also in where they go to church, where they marry, all those big what job they get, all those decisions are informed by what you believe and you should believe what is true. So we have these confessions of faith. Uh, They're inescapable. Uh, Last week, I dealt with some objections to confessionalism. I'm not going to go retread all that ground because the positive case I just made is a response to those objections. And the last thing that I mentioned is that that, uh, it's worth taking the time to nail down what you believe with great specificity because Christ is worth it. The the triune God is worth it. Worshiping him in spirit and truth is worth it. Take the time to apply yourself to think uh, through difficult issues um, and come to some conclusion somewhere to take a stand upon uh, what you believe God's word to teach. So, as I mentioned before, I'm taking a class right now that is walking through uh, a confession of faith um, of my seminary, and much of the material is going to be re- repackaging the information from class, from the reading, from the lectures, and then giving it back to you. So, you're getting a free seminary course. Uh, no charge, welcome to uh, what it, they call symbolics. I'm calling confessing the faith to, because I don't understand why they call it that. They never explain why they call it symbolics. Uh, so whatever. Um, but here we are. So tonight, what we want, what we're going to do is we're going to go over the history of this particular confession of faith that we're going to be covering, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. If you're not familiar with it, great. Tonight, you're going to get familiar with its historical origin, its basic structure in terms of, uh, structure is the wrong word, but uh, its sources, kind of where the authors of it were pulling from, and... From there, next week, you'll have some context. You'll have the the first episode. If you haven't listened to it, I would encourage 
to not just rely on my recap, but to go listen to the whole thing. Uh, you'll, you'll have a, a foundation for why you should confess the faith in some concrete way uh, with a confession. And then tonight is a historical explanation of the confession. I'm going to be walking uh, through. And next week we'll start with chapter one of said confession, which is on Holy Scripture, which will be, oh, excuse me, a good time. So, let's get right into it then. First up, why should you care? Why should you care about this particular confession? London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. 1689 was a long time ago. Was it not? It was, it was, it was a while ago. Uh, and most of history around then for Americans that that they're like, forget Europe. We zoom in on the colonies and we just, the only time you bring Europe back in the picture is whenever they invade, (laughs) um, or help or, or something else. And, and, your, your, the rest of history uh, only brings up the rest of the world insofar as America is involved with it. That's kind of how it, it's often taught. Uh, at least that's the way I was taught it in, in public school. I was in high school. And so we just kind of leave off. We kind of leave England whenever you get to the colonization of America and England just becomes this uh, villain <laughs> almost. Um, and, and, and the rest of, of the story, the way it's told. But we're going to go back to the beginning of the Reformation first, and then work our way up to the stated date of 1689. And along the way, try to build out a framework for understanding the historical context in very limited fashion. I obviously can't go through every detail, uh, and I won't uh, tonight. To just give you a, a bit of a sense of, of where it's coming from, because it, it's not written in a bubble. So the reason you should care about this particular confession is if you are Protestant, if you are non-denominational with Baptist theology, so you believe that you don't think you should baptize babies and you don't have a presbytery or a episcopacy, or a diocese, or something along those lines. So if, if you're Baptist in your ecclesiology, in your view of the ordinances, sacraments, then, and, and you're not some kind of heretic, so you're, you're not a Pelagian, you're not an antinomian, you're not, and if you don't know what those words mean, that's fine. That probably means you're not one, but and we can talk about it later. Uh, then these are your people. This is where you come from, theologically. Is out of the guys who wrote this confession. And then we can trace their lines back, but not in their Baptist distinctives. There's this movement called the Trail of Blood uh, that likes to argue that there's always been these self-aware, self-conscious Baptists in church history, in the church, all the way back to you know, John the Baptist is the first one, you know. Uh, no. Uh, I am a Reformed Baptist by conviction, but I do not think I need to defend it by making up uh, history that didn't happen. 
So uh, I can I can use the Bible to do that. So that's not where I'm coming from with this, but you, you can trace back their their historic Christian orthodoxy that they possess. So again, because they're, they're, they went out of their way, as, we're, as we'll see, to distinguish themselves from certain other groups uh, and, and to align themselves within a, a line of historic Christian orthodoxy built upon the scriptures. So let's roll the clock back a bit to Luther. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther, the Augustinian German monk who kicks off the Reformation. His impetus for this, there's just two different ones. They're often called the material and formal causes of the Reformation. Don't worry about the reason for the material and formal parts. I'll explain what they mean instead. It's Aristotle mumbo-jumbo. Um, the material principle or the material cause uh, is the thing that makes Luther do the thing. So it, it, it's, it's, it's the on-the-surface kind of principle which is justification by faith. So that's kind of the, the, the heartbeat, the center of the Reformation is you are made right with God. You are made righteous before God by the imputed righteousness of Christ. He gives it to you by the means of union with him by faith. This is that. Uh, this kind of the, the the initial thing that kicks things off and kind of starts the the move away from Roman Catholicism, the formal, which is the the thing underneath it, what what causes the cause, what what holds it up, what gives it shape, is sola scriptura. That being scripture alone, not me and my Bible under a tree somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and I don't need any kind of knowledge, training, historical context. Shoot, I don't even know how to read. I'll just sleep on top of it, and it will all of the truth will transmit into my brain. Not what that means. Rather, the Scripture is the, as we'll see next week when we go over Doctrine of Scripture, is the final, infallible, authoritative rule of faith and practice for the Christian. Is God's final word, his explicit revealed word. Uh, and, and in scripture, we find all that we need for life and godliness. So, Sola Scriptura uh, is the formal cause. So Luther kicks this thing off. He spreads the material and formal cause of the Reformation. It gets people, their gears turning in all kinds of directions. And where does that leave us at uh, in the broader scope of the Europe area? In tatters. Opportunists, genuine converts, hesitant sympathizers, abject pagans, papists, all stripes collide in what is a period of deep religious conflict. Out of this conflict arises three groups out of the initial uh, kind of conflagration. The Lutherans, obviously, those who are following Luther. The Reformed, who kind of uh, find a representative in John Calvin. Uh, he 
almost reluctant leader in many ways. And then the radicals, the radicals. And, and, and these guys include within their number a number of people, Sicinians, the uh, different anti-Trinitarian groups besides them. If you're familiar with uh, Servetus, who you know, was burned infamously at the stake uh, in Geneva under Calvin's auspices. And you have the Anabaptists. Why are they called Anabaptists? Well, it's the, the, to baptize again. Another baptism, so to speak. And the Anabaptists have this event that happens around them, which is the city of Munster. And the city of Munster is an absolute horror show. This crazy prophet guy rises up from amongst the Anabaptists, leads them all to take over this city, and then he uh, does a bunch of really crazy stuff, takes a bunch of wives, of course, because that's what all cult leaders do. He becomes a what you think of, he's sort of the, the prototype cult leader for what you see later in like Mormonism and other things like that. Uh, and And the city is eventually seized by a joint army of Protestants and Roman Catholics because they were all like, these guys are crazy. We got to put them down. Um, that left everybody pretty hesitant to trust anybody with any kind of beliefs in orbit around what the Anabaptists believe. And that's going to be important for our purposes because that is the impetus for the writing of the confession of faith that we'll be going through. So uh, that among other things, and the Anabaptists also had a bunch of other heretical beliefs that they would adopt, especially regarding the Trinity and other stuff. So, uh, and they would do weird stuff as well, besides just baptizing people. Like they, they had some weird stuff going on. So people didn't trust them. They were kind of weird. And they also killed them a lot. <laughs> so they, they, a lot of Anabaptists died uh, as heretics, etc. Not good. But it is out of the Reformed camp of these three. The Reformed, the Lutherans, the Radicals. It's out of the Reformed that the 1689 arises not out of the Anabaptists. And this is an important point. Because when you track the stream of theological development from the early church uh, through the early fathers and then Augustine and then the uh, Peter Lombard and Aquinas, the scholastics, you, you track that development of theology then to Luther and then Luther kind of breaks and circles back around to Augustine. So you kind of, uh, a lot of from Augustine to Luther there's a lot of theology that happens. Not all of it's bad either. But Luther kind of goes back and grabs Augustine and says, hey, Augustine, a bunch of stuff right that these guys kind of got twisted later. We should, we should go back this way. Um, and, and, and so you trace a line of, of August. It was often called Augustinian Calvinism. So you kind of go from Augustine to Luther into Calvin. And then Calvin 
looks at Luther and says, actually, you've got some weird stuff that you kept from those other guys. I'm going to go back to Calvin on those other, or back, back to Augustine on those other issues too. Uh, so that's why you, it often it's called Augustinian Calvinism. Luther gets skipped because a lot of his beliefs do, do get abandoned by Calvin. Um, it's out of that sh- stream, the Augustinian Calvin stream, that the Reformed Baptists or the particular Baptists, or as they're initially called, the Calvinistic Baptists, arise. And so if you're a Baptist, your deepest roots run here, if you're not a heretic or whatever. Um, So hopefully this is interesting to you. So the inheritors of Calvin in England, uh, so following that reform stream, the Augustinian Calvinist stream to England, and then the the guys who inherit Calvin in England eventually become known as the Puritans, or the dissidents, or the nonconformists, all these other, they have a bunch of names for them. Puritan was a pejorative uh, but that's often what we call them now. And they were called that because they sought the purification of the English church to the point that they were willing to schism from it, if necessary, and many of them did. And this is where the great age of confession writing begins. This is the 1600s. So if Luther and Calvin are in the 1500s, the 1600s is where uh, some of the Puritans are in the back end of the 1500s, and then they overlap into the early 1600s, we're, and then we're, we're heading toward 1689, so the back end of 1600. And in seeking the purification of the English church, where, where were they going to go? Their, their Bibles. But they also had to uh, write these confessions of faith. Why? They needed to distinguish themselves from the Lutherans, the Catholics, and the Radicals. They need to vindicate themselves in their Catholicity. We might wait, 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 but they just distinguish themselves from being Catholics. In their Catholicity with the past. So, so, they'll, so they'll be like, hey, uh, we believe along with this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, all the way back to the Apostles. So they, they wanted to draw some kind of line there. Even if it was a vague line with like five guys in it, there's still a line, and, and they wanted to show that they're, they're not the only ones who have ever believed this thing. Uh, their Catholicity, their orthodoxy. So again, we, we're affirming the basic creeds of the church, uh, Nicaea, Apostles' Creed, etc. Their union with, with the church historic. And to vindicate their beliefs biblically by attaching to each paragraph in the confession citations of their biblical evidence out of which the statements are birthed. Again, these confessions are summaries of biblical truth. That's the goal anyway. They're not perfect. They are not ultimately authoritative. I talked about that last week, but just a reminder, um, you should believe the Bible over and against anything anyone ever says about the Bible. Um, but eventually you have to say something about the Bible. You have to communicate what it's teaching, hence the confession. So, so that's kind of where these confessions come out of is uh, also England is wrought with this uh, political, kind of political religious strife. There's kings 
queens flopping back and forth. Roman, you have a Roman Catholic one here, then a Protestant one, Roman Catholic one, Protestant one, da, 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 back and forth. Um, and so different people are being persecuted at different times. And it's usually during these times of persecution, these confessions often get written because they're saying, hey, we're, you shouldn't be killing us. We're, we're Christians. <laughs> um, we're not heretics. Stop it. So the first confession that kind of arises then, that, that kind of carries over across history to the present, if you're Presbyterian, you'll be familiar with this, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this was commissioned by a English parliament. So this is a state-commissioned confession, written by pastors, but commissioned by the state. And uh, there were... Guy, there were different guys with different kinds of views on church government, church government, so the way that we should structure and govern churches, uh, who were present at this assembly. There were Congregationalists and Presbyterians. And the Presbyterians outnumbered or outweighed the Congregationalists, and so Presbyterian church government makes its way into the Westminster Confession and becomes the state established at that time anyway, um, mode of church government. The Congregationalists, a couple years later, say, hey, uh, that wasn't cool. We're going to write our own statement. <laughs> so they take the Westminster, modify it slightly, and so, some certain areas more than slightly. And I think for the better in almost everywhere that, 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 that they did. Uh, and especially on church government. These guys are congregationalists, so they believe that each local church, it should be uh, autonomous unto itself with its own governing body and not governed by the state in any way, shape, or form. The state cannot call synods. It cannot uh, do this, that, and the other. Uh, so th they were heading that direction. But they still affirmed uh, other basics of Presbyterianism like paedobaptism. So the Congregationalists write the Savoy Declaration. That's, that's this document they write, where they modify the Westminster, say, hey, uh, don't kill us. We're Christians just like you. We just don't agree with the state church thing. Some among their number uh, begin to wax and wane on, on the Pado-Baptist part. <laughs> they go, hey, wait, if... Uh, if the members of our churches need to be confessors of the faith, infants can't do that. <laughs> they ask a pretty valid question. And so they become Baptist by, I believe, following consistently the hermeneutical and systematic and covenantal convictions of the Congregationalists to their conclusion. And somewhere around here, the first London Confession is written. Now, uh, the Savoy Declaration is, is actually written after the first, London, the first London Confession. But the first London Confession is small, doesn't make too many waves, just a couple churches affirm it, and it kind of fades into the background. Um, and I got a book on it I haven't read yet, so I can't tell you more than that. Then, in 1677... So, uh, during a time in which uh, 
there's war and strife and all kinds of nasty things going on. Uh, two pastors of the uh, Petty France Church. It's not in France. It's in London. I don't know why it's called that. Whatever. British people name and stuff. I don't know. Uh, sure there's a reason. So these two guys, Nehemiah, Nehemiah Cox and William Collins, they get together and uh, they write the second London Confession of Faith. To do this, they utilize three documents and their Bibles. The three documents are the Westminster Confession, the First London Confession, and the Savoy De- Declaration. They primarily utilize the Savoy Declaration of the three. To the point that the Second London Confession is almost word for word matching with the Savoy. Uh, so they write up and publish it in 1677. And their concern in it is to distinguish them th- themselves from the Anabaptists, the Antinomians, and the General Baptists, the Arminian Baptists. They wanted to be clear that, hey, there are guys who affirm the baptism of disciples, confessing disciples, and affirm congregational church polity. And besides those two things are almost an identical lockstep with the Westminster Confessors, the Savoy Declarers, and we're not heretics, please don't kill us. (laughs) That's kind of the idea. Um, Just give you a, a, a brief sketch of Uh, the sources and the way they were used in in the Second London Confession. Uh, Eight paragraphs are from the First London Baptist Confession. Six are original to uh, what are called the framers, which we assume is Nehemiah Cox and William Collins, but we actually aren't even 100% positive of that, which is just really funny. Um, And then 146 of them, with some slight modifications, uh, some of the words here and there, but they don't change the substance of the meaning, are from the Savoy Declaration. So they are very much wanted to be known, hey, we are are not out of step here <laughs> with any of you guys. We're, we are as reformed as the day is long. We just think you're wrong on these basically two things. So, uh, in 1689, with the Edict of Toleration, after, uh, pretty sure it's William of Orange becomes king of England, uh, and he says, hey, stop killing each other (laughs) over your religious differences. Uh, there's an association of, of these Reformed Baptist churches, uh, or Calvinistic Baptist churches at the time. That's probably what they would have, uh, if they identified themselves with the label, that's probably what they would have gone with. They get together, and they uh, take the already published confession and say, this is ours. We're going to put our stamp on it. This is, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. 
uh, together as a group of, of pastors of, of these churches. And these churches together with us, they're congregational, so the churches have to affirm it as well. And we all confess the same faith together. We are not that far from you, our brothers, and we would like to live in peace, please. So uh, that's what happens. And then we go from there. So the confession itself has four distinctive streams of theological uh, stuff, ideas, frameworks running through it, perspectives. You have historic orthodoxy. So there's, you'll notice in the confession itself, there's language that reflects uh, the Nicene Creed, the uh, Chalcedonian definition, etc. cetera. Uh, you have Reformed theology. So uh, regarding soteriology, anthropology, scripture, things like that. The solas, tulip, everything like that is very clearly affirmed. You have the Puritan perspectives, because these, these guys are coming out of the Puritan movement, so you have uh, particular uh, focuses there on the way sanctification works and stuff like that, that come out of the Puritans. Uh, covenantal thinking also arises out of the Puritans in many ways. And then you have the Baptist particulars. So, church polity, congregationalism, uh, and, and the view on baptism. And they you know, don't want to call it sacraments. They call it ordinances, things like that. So why does that, why does all of this matter for us? We'll get into to closing here. Uh, it shows the context and the limitations of historic confessions. Like with any book, the historical context helps us to understand the concerns being addressed and allow us to make proper use in our day. We want to make proper appropriation of history, not an improper uh, just ingestion of it. Because the reality is, if we read into these confessions, things we're dealing with, then we might misunderstand what they mean. And then we say, oh yeah, I believe this. And then we just change the meaning of the words <laughs> at our leisure to make it mean something else or whatever we, we want to wrap uh, up in it uh, in order to make it convenient for us to say we affirm this confession, but also I believe a bunch of weird stuff that these guys would have never fathomed. We don't want that. We want to make proper use of it. It also shows the limitations of these kinds of historic confessions. There are issues today it just does not address. However, it gives us a framework and a foundation to address them because it gives us a systematic theology that has a biblical view of God, scripture, man, creation, revelation, law, gospel, etc. Because it is accurately summarizing the biblical teaching on these subjects, we can go to it and say, hey, uh, you know what I believe about God? Here's a short chapter with five paragraphs. And, and you can do that if you under if you have come to the conviction that it is accurately describing the biblical teaching, then that's a fair play. And it makes life a lot easier <laughs> when you have a pre-written confession of faith that you can rely upon 
for the purpose of instruction, engagement, argumentation, and devotion. It also helps us to bring together what I'm beginning to call the, the triangle of uh, practical theology. So building your theological uh, confession, it emerges out of, out of three different categories that all are perichoretic with each other. Uh, so if you've listened to me teach on the Trinity, you'll be familiar with this idea that, that, that they influence, there's not one that you just start with, but they're always all present in each other in some way. We use this idea uh, to talk about the um, perichoresis between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, that's where that word is is used elsewhere in theology, and it has usefulness in places like this. And the triangle of uh, what I'm called practical theology is systematics, biblical theology, and exegetical theology. You might be saying, well, wait a second. Isn't exegesis the foundation starting point? Yes, to a certain degree. But you're always having some kind of systematic worldview that is influencing your exegesis. And a view on the whole narrative of scripture that influences your exegesis of any particular text. And then your exegesis helps you build out that biblical theology, helps you build out that systematic perspective. So that's why I mean that they're perichoretic. They're always happening at the same time, even if it feels like you're doing only one. They should always be happening uh, together, but they are distinct. And what that builds, the little triangle it forms, should be a practical theology. Because all theology, when rightly understood, is practical, is useful, pertains to the Christian life in some way. And so what a confession helps you do is it, it helps uh, provide you with, in, in some ways, all three of these things uh, happening together. Um, as we go through this, you're going to see systematics, you're going to see exegesis, we're going to walk through biblical text, and you're going to see a biblical theology forming. Um, a view of the whole meta narrative of, of scripture. And my hope is and prayer is that at the end of it, uh, you will walk away with a practical theology. That this, uh, your, again, your confession of faith is not just what comes out of your mouth, but what comes out of your heart, what comes out of your life. Uh, what you really believe, you will confess one way or another. So I want to read uh, here at the end um, two things. The first is, you might be thinking, well, is Josh just going to spend the next few weeks reading and exegeting a confession to us? No. We will be utilizing the proof text they provide to walk through these texts and see, as the writers of the confession have asked us to do, whether they are correct. In their original letter to the reader that they attached to the beginning of the confession, the writers say this, We have also taken care to affix text of scripture at the bottom for the confirmation of each article in our confession, in which work we have studiously endeavored to select such as are most clear and pertinent for the proof of what is asserted by us, 
And our earnest desire is that all into whose hands this may come would follow that never enough commended example of the noble Bereans who searched the scriptures daily that they might find out whether the things preached to them were so or not. And I think I quoted this and said this last week, but it's worth saying again because I haven't touched a biblical text this whole time and that was intentional. This is more of a historical lecture, (laughs) but we're getting into the Bible next week. Don't worry. Uh, When we get into the section on uh, scripture. And finally, I want to close with this prayer and then we'll go to uh, some questions. And this is a prayer from that same letter to the reader. And I'll, I'll just, there's no problem appropriating someone else's prayers here. And I think it's, it's a good one and shows where their heart was at in writing this confession. They were not concerned with just relegating all of this up to the dusty upstairs uh, room in our heads, but in having it affect our entire lives. So let's pray uh, with these old dead uh, men who have delivered us a great gift through history. That the God of all grace will pour out those measures of his Holy Spirit upon us. That the profession of the truth may be accompanied with sound belief and diligent practice of it by us. That his name may in all things be glorified.